Hi there. A quick message before we start. Don't forget that you can save money this winter when you book your ski hire at intersportrent.com and use the code SKIPODCAST. You'll get a guaranteed discount for all ski hire in France, Austria and Switzerland. And to make it even simpler, you don't even need to use that code. Just take the link in the show notes and your basket will automatically be reduced. So if you want to support the Ski Podcast, remember to book your ski hire within support and to use the code Ski Podcast or take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Right, let's get on with the show. Hi there, listener, and welcome to episode 169 of the Ski Podcast. This is a special episode. I was joined by Ed Lee, presenter of BBC's Ski Sunday, and we talked about all sorts of things, ranging from the Ski Sunday season to date, which took him from the uh, strip of snow at Adelboden to the uh, roaring crowds at Schladming. Uh, we talk about the impact of global warming on ski seasons. Ed is an ambassador for DSUK. We talk about how you can help raise funds for them. We discuss splitboarding in Courcheval and the impending World Championships coming up in Les Trois-Vallées and also the Natural Selection Tour. And we also go back to the glory days when he went sailing on ice with Simon Le Bon in BBC's High Altitude and finish off uh, discussing a very nasty injury he had in Le. It was a pleasure to chat with Ed. So with no more ado, let's have a listen to our conversation. So I'm really excited to be joined by uh, Ed Lee uh, from BBC's Ski Sunday. Hi, Ed. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Ian. Yourself? Yeah, I'm I'm good. Uh, whereabouts are you joining us from today? I am in a friend's house, uh, Chris Moran. I think a mutual friend. And he he bought a ramshackle barn, must be three, maybe even four years ago now. And he's... Five years ago, he's just shouted at me from the background. <laughs> um, and he's done the most incredible job. It's it's one of those buildings that almost certainly would have had cattle sleeping under some very cold residents a couple of hundred years ago. And he's now, he's renovated it. And you've got this huge view from Valmorel right across to the Vanuatu National Park, sort of east of Courcheval. It's it's stunning. So you're in the French Alps. I worked out uh, from that, and I do know where Chris <laughs> lives above above uh, Bazel. And I mean, you've been pretty busy uh, this winter. I mean, I've been following your uh, exploits uh, on uh, Ski Sunday because it started off in Adelboden and then Vengen, Kitzbühel. I watched the Schladming night slalom in the morning. Has it been pretty full on moving from resort to resort across the season? It has, but it's been wonderful. Because this is the first time since we got the Ski Sunday uh, 2020 series away just before COVID struck. If you cast your mind back, the World Championships were due to be held in China as an Olympic test event in that 2020. And they weren't able to run it. But we did. That was the last season where we followed all of the racing. Since then, it's been either locked in one resort or it's been an abbreviated season that was cut short by the Olympics. So going back out, chasing the World Cups, doing a proper season, it's been lovely. It's, it's hectic, it's really busy, but it's such a privilege. It looks like you and Chemi are having fun at you know, these different venues. The atmosphere, I think um, I recall from uh, this week's Ski Sunday, is it 40,000 people you get at that night slalom at Schladming? I don't know exactly the numbers, but they were expecting 50. They And we're seeing that at a lot of places. There's definitely, if you wanted to look a little bit behind the velvet rope, there's a different atmosphere at the races. 
the joie de vivre maybe and the kind of little flourishes that you'd see somewhere like Wengen where they have the chestnuts out and there's people having house parties all the way along the road that you walk down to get to the finish area. They weren't there. The crowds are bigger, but they're, I don't know how you'd describe it, a little bit sharper, a little bit chippier, maybe a little bit drunker at times. (laughs) But um, Schladming Schladming did feel, last week, the night slalom in Schladming felt really, that felt like a return to normal almost. But um, Wengen, certainly, there was a little bit of a different feel to it. And Adelboden, definitely, if you cast your mind back, that was when the winter was yet to start. And it felt there was I felt it, but it, just personally on myself, it was it was quite a sort of oh we're forcing this, and I I found that first week quite scary. Yeah, and to fill in uh, listeners who didn't actually see that one at Adelboden, it was at that particular uh, time in uh, mid to December to Christmas time where there really were just strips of snow on the mountain, and for Adelboden it was all artificial snow. There was no other snow on the mountain at all, and it, not a pretty sight. I think a lot of the British media got very uh, excited and carried lots of stories about the uh, the end of skiing. Fortunately. We had a lot of snow uh, after that. Yeah, I can understand how that could uh, affect you like that. Because I think actually on that on my next podcast, which I'm recording tomorrow, I don't quite know what order all of these are going to appear. I've got Lauren McCallum from uh, Protect Our Winters coming on the podcast. And I think you're a, an ambassador for uh, for Protect Our Winters. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I actually spent a couple of days with Lauren out here recently. And it's fascinating talking to her because she's incredibly pragmatic and non-judgmental but she has so much insight into the challenges we face and it's always it's really refreshing because as some of them was one of the most well-educated people on this issue she has hope which is one of the things that really works for me you see we spoke to a bbc weatherman on ski sunday who said for the last 50 years we've seen an average decline of 8% in snowfalls every decade, which is a terrifying statistic. And But you speak to Lauren and she will tell you that we can all make a difference. There's a really, probably the most powerful thing you can do. We can all just go and voice our concerns to our MPs. I might have got this from Greenpeace. It's hard to uh, recall. But the optimism, the action is better than the pessimism of the thought. And I'm I'm very much uh, with Lauren in that respect. You know, it is possible to uh, to change things. We know it, it's uh, it's all achievable. It's just a matter of having the will to be able to do it. And organisations such as Protect Our Winters, you know, collectively encouraging people to take that kind of action to make, I know they're very focused on systemic change rather than individual change per se. But I think, you know, they do a very good job in terms of their lobbying. And I guess we'll discuss that more um, in my next in episode 168 whichever one it's going to be but let, let me ask you about um one of the reasons i wanted to talk to you today the reason for today's call is disability Snowsport uk have launched a new fundraising campaign uh, quite a long hashtag hashtag ski bay for dsuk i wonder if you could tell us what that is what does that stand for well, anyone who uses ebay regularly knows that you have that drop down menu when you're listing your item as to how much uh, if you want to give any uh, percentage of the sale to charity and disability snowsport uk hooked onto the idea that there's so much ski gear 
Like it's, it's one of those really, like mountain biking, it's a really gear intensive sport. And there is so much gear hanging around in people's garages. If you want to help out, it's so simple. Just chuck some gear on eBay. You choose what percent, anything from 10 to 100% of the sale price will go directly to Disability Snowsport UK as soon as you sell that item. So it's a really, really easy way of making a difference for, for a charity who do so much incredible work. So like you say, long hashtag, but a really, really simple premise. So for sure. And uh, I guess the kind of twin advantage there that I really like about it as well is we're talking about the circular economy here as well. So you can be raising funds for a, uh, a good charity for Disability Snow Sport UK. But at the same time, it's not like you're necessarily stopping people buying something new, but you're giving them the opportunity to buy something, you know, pre-loved. And actually, I've been, it's one of those areas, you know, I'm very uh, um, motivated to reduce my emissions and to reduce my carbon footprint. And in the last year, I have got much better <laughs> at this, going through that massive pile of stuff that I've got in the cupboard and actually trying to, you know, sell some of it. And I'm not really too fussed about necessarily how much money I get you know, I'd be much happier to know that someone was using it rather than it just being wasted and um, and certainly not going to chuck it away so it goes into into landfill because, um, you know, we've had people on the show before. I remember uh, talking to the guys from uh, Hooski who are explaining that, you know, a lot of the stuff that you give away to charity shops doesn't end up in the charity shop and does end up in landfill uh, in, the, in the long run. I mean, I'm guessing... With a long career like yours, you've probably got a lot of spare stuff yourself. Have you have you listed any? I, I have. I, I've got a snowboard that's going on next week. Really nice uh, uh, Salomon, but I'm, I'll put, and that'll be on my social media channels as soon as I do that. But the the main thing for me, like I I like the idea. I got my first ever holiday. I think I got it for one hundred and thirty quid with the coach, the lift pass, the accommodation and half board. There's this, I truly believe it's a misnomer. Yes, if you go to Courcheval or you go to Zermatt, you can go and spend 10, 15, 20 grand on a family holiday. But there, as you say, there are ways to do this. Like You can find cracks in all of these systems and you can do things cheaply. Um, Chris Moran, where I'm staying now, he said he went into the um, Deschetterie and found a, a Travis Rice Pro model board that no doubt someone had cleaned out of a garage in Courcheval. These, the, there are layers. And the ski lifts do the exact same thing. Big European resorts, when they retire ski lifts, if you go and ski in New Zealand, in India, in uh, South America, you'll find ski lifts that have had previous lives in North America or Europe. So this, as you say, the circular economy works on every scale for every layer of the industry for me. Um, but yeah, to go back to it, I will, to go back to your question, I will definitely, I'll have some gear going up. So if anyone keeps an eye on my social media channels, they'll see anything that I put up there. I've got a couple of boards to go. Excellent. I'll put uh, some links into the show notes for your social media channels so people can follow that. And I'll also put a link in there to, uh, there's a really good campaign uh, video, but a little bit more information about Disability Snowsport UK. I wondered if you could just elaborate on you know, what that money would actually be used for. It's uh, lessons for anyone with a disability in the UK. And it makes such an incredible difference. I've met uh, five or six of the people that they work with. And it's 
so liberating. It offers independence and dopamine to people who are starved of those in so much of their normal life. And things that a lot of us take for granted or it's a choice for a lot of us, for them, it's something that they don't have access to. So, I mean, we all know if you're listening to this podcast, I'm guessing you have passion for the mountains and we know the way mountains can change people's lives. And you can amplify that by hundreds of times when it comes to someone with a disability. So I'm, I'm so passionate about that. I met a guy called David last year who had requested to meet me because he said I was his hero, which I found obviously very humbling, but also very ironic when you consider that when you actually meet him and what he was going through just to be able to learn to sit ski was 10 times more than anything I've ever achieved. I was, I, it was quite spectacular. And the work DSUK do is so, it's underfunded and oversubscribed. So they need this help. And this is a really easy way of helping them out. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so I guess the key uh, point to remember there, uh, listener, if you've got any you know, ski stuff at home, whether it's your snowboard or uh, ski pants or jackets, etc., that you don't use anymore, go on to eBay and then select Disability Snow Sport UK, and uh, and that can, can contribute the funds to them. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. You. It no. doesn't need to be ski gear. Obviously, they're going for the ski market, but you can sell anything, and you select them. So you can sell your dog, your plants. <laughs> excellent well i think i think uh, you know people are much more uh open to the idea of of selling and buying uh items that these days are pre-loved it used to be called second hand but that doesn't sound quite as good as uh, as pre-loved and you know my uh uh, daughter's kind of like got her own little business going selling things on vinted and depop and uh certainly all of her friends you know they love going out to kilo sales and uh and uh, car boot sales and things like this looking for uh bargains so there you go uh listener um, whether it's your ski gear or your dog uh, or anything else, uh, you can sell it on eBay and raise funds for Disability Snow Sport UK. Uh, now, Ed, I'd like to. So you're in Courcheval uh, just now. And uh, I think you are in Courcheval because um, I can't remember the exact episode uh, situation on the Ski Sunday. But I do know that the World Championships are coming up uh, in the three valleys very shortly they will be um hosted between Courcheval and Meribel between the 6th and the 19th of February and I take it that's why you're there right now is it well I'm actually it's very close to we get Schladming actually the night race takes place on the Tuesday night so by the time we've tidied up there we have Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday off uh before we go to the next race and we were you're obviously in eastern Austria and then there's a slalom in Chamonix next week, and then we're here for the World Champs. But I thought I'd come over and have a little look around. The French Alps got the best of the last snowfall. And the good news is, across the Alps, it stayed incredibly cold. We've had average temperatures here of around minus 10 for the last four or five days. North Face is down to seven or 800 metres of maintained snow. It, the cold, it longest sustained cold period i've seen in the alps for a while so it's been glorious snow up here still we've been touring around split boarding and really enjoying ourselves but it's back to work tomorrow in chamonix uh there's a slalom down into les Uches. and then as you say we'll be back here the world championships i'm really fascinated it will be a, an amazing test of the world's largest ski area they've got the world champion alpine ski world championships 
during half term. So it's a logistical challenge is the way I would say it. But looking at what they've got here and the way it's set up, I think it's going to be spectacular. I'll come back to the World Championships because uh, I do have a, a bit of inside info uh, on that. But you mentioned that you were ski touring. And actually, in the green room before uh, uh, chatting just now, you told me that you bought a ski touring pass. And I have to admit, although I think <laughs> I think I know a reasonable amount about the Three Valleys, and ski, I didn't even know that they sold a separate Three Valleys, or in this case, Courcheval ski touring pass. What, what does that cover then? It's so interesting. Very few resorts uh, actually advertise that they have a ski touring pass. You have to ask. And sometimes it might take one or two asks or them asking, uh, depending on who the attendant is, them asking a superior. But in Courcheval, it's usually what it will entail is allowing you to get to a high point, which gives you access to the back country behind the resort. And in Courcheval, that is... I think one of the best resort accessed ski touring areas I've ever seen, especially for beginner intermediates. It's very, very straightforward, huge area. If you wanted to go and try out overnight refuge trips, it's there. It's, it's truly a spectacular area and you pay 29 euros versus 65 for a standard day pass, which would just cover Courcheval. I think it's about 70, 71 for three valleys. But the 29 euros will let you up the Ariand, uh, then you go Aguida Free, and then Shan Rossa. And then that, that takes you out to what would be the most eastern point of the three valleys. And you have access then to this huge bowl, and you can just tour around under your own steam out there. And you have access back to the corner of the resort. And if you park your car on that side, then you can come in as late as you want at night or stay out for a couple of days. So it's a very, very economic way to make the most of the mountains. Excellent. Well, that is a really uh, a good tip. And I, I didn't know about it. I do know about some of the ski touring or the skiing over in that area there, because I think some of it uh, goes through. Um, is it called the Col de Port- Portetta? Yep, that's one of them. I mean, you go and look on one of the resources like FatMap, which I'm using increasingly, like I almost live on it. It's like, I, I started looking at other maps and you start sort of trying to move them around. We had um, some drone footage and I found myself trying to move the drone footage like it's FatMap. Port, <laughs> uh, Portetta is uh, the eastern boundary in between the... Um, big valley the Vanwa national park which sits i mean the resorts around here there's a horseshoe of resorts val d'isere team les arc la plan courcheval meribel val sit in a horseshoe around the Vanwa national park and that central area you can kind of dip into it from the back of any of those resorts and it is just spectacular and the thing i love about it you can do it at your own pace you've got portetta's actually quite I'd say intermediate, but you've got these two giant rock spires. It's very similar to the Dolomites with the rock color, but it's flanked by these huge peaks. And you can sit out there, and I would probably 10, 15 years ago, frothed over the lines. These days I go out and sort of just marvel at the beauty of it all. It's quite, quite stunning. 
Yeah, for me, I mean, that's one of the joys of ski touring. Uh, anyway, I think regular listeners will know that I went and stayed in a refuge, basically a couple of valleys over from that in the uh, Meribel area, stayed uh, there overnight um, um, about a month ago, something like that. as an unmanned refuge, and I just ski toured uh, up there just to really spend some time in the mountains away from the lift system and that is the joy just being able to have a little bit of uh, the mountain to yourself it's like maybe being a bit greedy about it but uh you know that's that that kind of peace and calm that you can't really get uh, elsewhere and you know just for again for the benefit of the listener we're talking about yeah i know you said way on the eastern side so someone probably can visualize the three valleys map we're talking about way over on the Courchevel 1650 side to the left of that even as you're looking at the map yeah, exactly. Um, and it's well worth going to have a look at. It's almost, if you looked at it on a map, the classic map facing north, it's almost like a teardrop that pops out on that, that eastern side. And that's the lovely part of it. It's a very big open bowl, so you can choose the amount of exposure and the length of the journey. There's some very, very basic gentle stuff, but there are some curves up at the sides and you look mm-hmm. around you and you see i mean i i did some fairly heavy free riding in my day but there was there were some lines up there and there was especially some touring tracks zigzagging up couloirs where you just think no thanks i'm all right actually for that it's, <laughs> there's you can basically your imagination is the own limitation is the only limitation up there yeah i mean you i think your risk uh threshold changes as you get older uh as well um, I like the idea as well that you're referring to kind of like beginner and in- intermediate uh, routes down. You're like, this is relative, right? <laughs> We're not saying well, any yes. beginners that head up there. Well, no, no, no. On the, if you're talking about a peace gear, but in terms of someone who's getting into ski touring, it's it's very, I'd call that sort of stabilizer ski touring because you've, in the event of any accident, anything happens, you've got the shelter of the two refuges, which are quite close. I'd say you're less than an hour from any kind of uh, infrastructure if you need help. And it's very right. close. You're, I think it's a seven kilometer sort of gentle traverse, bit of walking, bit of skating to get out. So it's really, you're not very far off the beaten track, but you get a real, as you said, you still get that wonderful sense of isolation out there now you mentioned the world championships and i said i was going to come back to that uh, the three valleys an area i know uh, pretty well and i've been looking forward to this event for quite a long time but as you observe it is going to be during vacances scolaire half term holidays uh, etc uh, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of impact that has i do know that um not many of the actual race piece uh, are, are are being taken off the, uh, the, the the peace map, so to speak. Uh, so you can still ski, you know, a very large amount of the area. And then a couple of other places in both, on the course, in both Courcheval, the Eclipse, the downhill run, and then over in, uh, in Meribel, I can't exactly remember what that one's called, but the women's downhill, there are tunnels that they've built underneath the actual course itself. So regular skiers can still keep skiing on their routes without being interrupted by the races themselves. But I was out in Maribel, uh, like I said, last uh, or early this month. And, you know, they've built they've built all of the um, the stands there. They've got all the infrastructure in place. They're going to have uh, free uh, shuttles and the the uh, gondola from Breed Labatt is going to be free going up uh, during the day as well. I think one of the arguments is 
that because a lot of the people there, a lot of the hotels, let's say, will be occupied by people who are either racing or who are media or associated with the races, there will actually be fewer general vacancier holiday makers uh, in resorts so therefore it could level out but the only way we'll find out will be in in practice in my experience i've done i don't know six or seven world championships and obviously follow the world cup there are it's really only the swiss and the austrian teams and a sprinkling of media who still have the kind of budgets which would allow them to accommodate themselves in resort most people, Ski Sunday included, we will stay out of resort. There are a couple of exceptions where somewhere like Wengen, where you just can't get access to the resort quickly enough from down the valley. But Adelboden, we stay in Interlaken, Kitzbühel, we're quite a long way out of town each time. We're in, we're going to stay here in Bozell on the other side of the valley. So, and that goes for, let's say you bring in two and a half, two to two and a half thousand people for a world championships. I'd say 80 to 90% of them will be staying Breedleban, Leselo, uh, Moutier, Bozelle areas. They won't be clogging up resort beds, but they will. And I think, as you said, the Three Valleys is such a vast area. It's so well designed and they manage it so well that you can, you can cast away up. As the moment you get out of Monterey or you're out of La Pra then the ski area is wide open. So there shouldn't be too much pressure there. I think the one thing that will probably, that you'd, if you're coming here, that you want to plan around is parking. That will be at a premium. <laughs> because yeah, there, yeah. if people are staying outside resorts, there's going to be a lot of traffic coming in. And people carrying a lot of cameras, ski gear, wax techs, and not using buses. So there's going to be a lot of cars up in resort. Uh, well for sure well we'll see how that works out now obviously we're talking about here the alpine ski world championships there's no snowboarding going on i think i heard you say in uh, another podcast the uh, excellent looking sideways with uh, matt Barr, that you don't actually watch much of the racing <laughs> when it's on ski sunday um i watch a, i watch a little bit of it i watch the big races and i watch it when there's a big story there um i'd say i'm a casual fan but you temper that with the fact that each weekend, Shemi will absorb every piece of alpine skiing that's going on. I'm doing exactly the same with all of the freestyle, the park and pipe stuff. So we've got the Alpine World Championships, but running parallel, uh, clipping that second weekend of the World Champions, Alpine World Championships will be the park and pipe freestyle World Championships in Georgia. Um, then the natural selection duels kick off and then natural selection kicks off. Uh, we've just had X Games. So it's, it's having, in this era of saturated content, it's having the bandwidth to take everything in. So, uh, yeah, I, I do prioritise would be the way of diplomatically saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but so I guess uh, Chemi and, and Graham will be you know, covering most of, of the racing. What will your focus be on then before uh, the GP uh, Park and Pipe Champs start up? Um, uh, mostly I'll be looking at natural selection duels is one of, that's my favourite competition at the moment there. It's the backcountry freestyle contest and they have their eight qualified men, four qualified women from the Alaska event last year. They'll go up against uh, eight new men and the four new women. But it's a different format. Usually they'd have that in Jackson Hole in Wyoming. But this year, 
the pre-qualified uh, 12 riders get to choose wherever they want to host the event. So it's there'll be 12 different locations where riders go in and have a... They, all they have to do is pick a face with two hits. One of them has to be natural, and they get four goes at it. Sounds quite complex, but essentially, as a viewer, you'll get to see two riders going head-to-head in totally fresh terrain. And there'll be 12 of those duels through February. So I am looking forward to those so much. It's, they're the best natural, how you'd say the best snowboarders in the world in my eyes, because they can do all of the freestyle tricks, but they do that on natural terrain. So many times it will be first hit. Right. Okay. And, and will you be featuring that on Ski Sunday? Will you natural selection? No, it'll, uh, we unfortunately, I have a gigantic bee in my bonnet at the moment. The FIS, the International Ski Federation, uh, have elected a new president and he's come in on the back of a mandate to sort out the television rights, which have been, they belong to each individual ski federation, but save going into a dark and murky swamp, uh, those rights need to be sorted out because we lost the rights to the Larks Open, Europe's biggest freestyle competition, uh, two weeks ago. And we don't have the freestyle ski rights either because they're being sold by national federations. And it makes it, they just they get sold and then resold to on-demand channels who you can't find anywhere. They, they won't answer emails or conversations about selling rights, highlights, packages. So... It's it's so frustrating when all you want to do is promote your sport and then people are buying these rights at extortionate rates, but they're not wanting to actually let anyone see them. It seems so counterproductive to me. I can see how that would be, you know, really frustrating. But, you know, personally, I I like the format of, uh, of Ski Sunday. I'm less interested in the racing. I don't tend to, I tend to fast forward a lot through the uh, through the racing itself uh, i'm much more interested in the features those elements like for example tim warwood did some split boarding uh, in scotland with will lauren who we mentioned uh, earlier and the uh, mount noir feature i thought that was really interesting i've interviewed um winona on the podcast before from that you know those sort of things to me it's 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 that's a more interesting element getting behind the scenes of just racing. I appreciate, you know, that's probably what over 45 years of ski Sunday people have tuned in for perhaps, but uh, what I really used to love and it's such shame. This doesn't happen anymore was when you and Graham um, ran, I think it was a separate program called high altitude. You remember that? I remember it. Well, it was, um, It was in that era of TV where challenges, the sort of Top Gear challenge, uh, was was very much a part of the formatting. But um, and I remember it really fondly. It was an incredible time. I'd done when I started Ski Sunday in two thousand and seven. They didn't. They got this ski format that worked, and they didn't really know what to do with me. So I started experimenting. There was a cameraman called Chris Kirkham, a.k.a. Zoid, who I'd known for a while, really good snowboarder and brilliant cameraman. And he, we went uh, down to New Zealand in the off-season and I sort of, I said to him, look, we should just do some stuff. And I mentioned it 
We did a piece on Snow Park down there, the resort that is single chairlift and it was just a snow park. And we did a piece on how you can go skiing, uh, snowboarding, surfing and skateboarding in a day there. And the producers really liked that. So we brought it up. We carried on with that theme in 2008. And I went some, we went and found all of the ski fields in central Siberia that are actually mining towns. But because Putin was so passionate about skiing, he'd incentivized mining permits if you built a ski resort. So you can go through Siberia and find all of these crazy little ski resorts. So we went and did that. We went and went sandboarding in Morocco and started exploring those elements. And High Altitude was born out of that. Graham at the same time was doing some challenges. I think he'd, I think he'd raced across Greenland ski touring. So they saw this coming and thought, okay, we'll do that. And it's funny that you mentioned those cultural elements being your favorite. I feel very strongly now that we didn't, I didn't have the experience as a broadcaster to recognize what high altitude should have been. I was a little too green on the program. I didn't have enough maturity and we bit off more than we could chew in terms of the, what we could do in the time we had with the money we had. So it was it was really good, I think, if you were a passionate, as you are a passionate mountain man, uh, mountain person. But I'd love, I would love to have another go at high altitude now and make something that reflected the culture of the mountains as we show it on Ski Sunday now. Yeah, to be able to expand on on some of those areas that you've uh, uh, touched on now. Well, I, I happen to have uh, one of the pages up in front of me at the moment, and you know, you covered things like uh, crossing uh, Iceland and taking Simon Le Bon uh, to go sailing. I think it was on Samaritz, was it, or something like that? No, it was up in. That was one of the most incredible weekends. We went up to a frozen lake in Sweden, central Sweden, and you've essentially got a giant ice skate blade about 60 centimeters long on a little trime, not a trimaran, but you've got three blades on a triangle and not a big sail, but you needed less than six or seven miles an hour of wind to create. There was so little friction that you could generate two or three times the wind speed. So we, I think on one of the final races, we got up to about 10 miles an hour of wind which meant we were doing close to 30 miles an hour, which is great when you're sidling along. But the moment you came into the marks together and start jostling in close proximity was really scary. It was fantastic. I'd highly recommend that as a sport. Well, uh, you know, it looked uh, brilliant on screen. And I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's on YouTube. It probably is on YouTube uh, uh, somewhere. Maybe I'll fish that out and put that into the show notes. But I do recall, you know, flying uh, somewhere uh, long haul at one point and high altitude was one of the choices, you know, on the in-flight entertainment. And I thought it was really perfect for that sort of thing. So the BBC are probably still syndicating it out somewhere. You know, but, uh, you know, maybe if if we're lucky, you'll be able to uh, convince them to do it again. Because I think I mentioned earlier, I think it is 45 years that Ski Sunday has been going now. And I couldn't exactly remember when uh, you joined, but we're going to say 16 uh, years ago. And another thing I heard you mention on Matt's podcast was that uh, Ski Sunday has like a really high um, approval rating. Is that the right term for it? Yeah, so they do, the BBC do this, and different channels have different remits. So BBC One goes head-to-head with ITV, and it's about entertainment and mass audiences. You're looking for 
whatever pleases the most amount of people. Whereas with BBC Two, they focus in on special interests. So the goal is not having the biggest audiences, but having programming that really resonates with the viewers it does attract. So you get scored on different metrics on BBC Two, and they go for, yeah, they call it AI, but I think it's audience appreciation. And Ski Sunday consistently score. It's one of the highest scoring shows on BBC in that metric because people, it really does resonate with people. And it's, it's such a lovely thing to be a part of because you, you, whenever we meet people who watch it, they're always really passionate about it. And I'm, I'm really positive that a big chunk of it comes down to the fact that this is one of the few sports that people do where it doesn't matter. You do it together, no matter the generation. It's not unusual to see parents and kids doing it at the same time, parents, kids, and grandparents doing it at the same time. And they all get something from it. So you all go on the holiday. You may do it together. You may go off different places. Teenagers do, go and do one thing. Parents do another. Grandparents do another. But the program has the same appeal where people still sit down and it's destination viewing. And I think that's one of the things that perennially hits the mark. Well, I can back that up in our household because, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I guess my kids probably don't have <laughs> so much choice because I kind of get them to watch it, but they love, they love the freestyle side of things. You know, the racing itself, that's not particularly interesting, but it, you know, if it comes to the Olympics, it's ski across, board across there without doubt, the most entertaining uh, disciplines uh, to watch. But when there is a freestyle of, of any description on, and it, you know, you mentioned before the park and pipe team, uh, the X Games, and uh, you know they. I interviewed uh, Mia Brooks at the uh, Birmingham Ski Show, and oh god, I could not believe when I was interviewing her that she's doing her GCSEs uh, this year. And I, you know, I've got twins, and they're doing GCSEs. So I came back from the Birmingham show, and I said to them, "This this girl's going out to compete on the World Cup circuit. She's in the same year as you at school." I mean, you know, I felt often feel old when I'm talking to you know the freestyle athletes because they tend to be a lot younger but uh, you know that is to me the most exciting bit so dynamic that that side of things and you know we have now we're I don't know if we're going into the second probably going into the second or maybe even the third generation of those very successful British freestyle athletes it's very exciting to watch and but so many of them if you speak to them it's that if you can't see it you can't be it and ski Sunday and Ski Sunday is probably the most high-profile mainstream, but every layer of ski media in the UK, for a country with no mountains, we're producing a lot of talent. And that comes from, I'm sure it was the same, similar for you, but I hear this story so many times. People are like, oh, I got into it by watching. People just didn't have an idea, but they watch Ski Sunday and they're like, oh, that exists. I'll give that a try. We watched Ski Sunday with David Vine. My dad was passionate about it, and we all sat down to watch it. And they built Gloucester Dry Ski Slope close to the house. So my dad was like, we're going to learn to ski. And my mum was a teacher. So we were able to tag on to the back of a school ski holiday, bargain basement. And that, ca- that actually comes back to the first point we made about DSUK and eBay. I'm passionate about making the mountains affordable. I think that they have such a powerful ability to broaden people's horizons metaphorically and literally 
that it, it's, it doesn't have to be really expensive. You can get out there and enjoy them. It's, they are accessible. If It takes a bit of ambition, a bit of hard work, but it's available to everyone. And I love that role that Ski Sunday fulfills is to get, is to help people see what's possible there. And I, 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 that's one of the biggest privileges of being a part of the show is that it inspired me. And now it ha- I know that I know the, the effect it has on other people. Yeah. And I think, you know, people clearly do have, you know, a, a real love for uh, Ski Sunday. But sometimes, you know, they don't uh, have any appreciation for what's going on, like off camera or behind the scenes. And I think when that winter, when you were in Lax, where you were based there for the whole winter, I interviewed Shemi uh, on the podcast, uh, you know, that winter from, uh, you know, you were you were mixing in a very small group. I think it was just yourself, the two of you and, and Chris uh, uh, as well. I'll just I'll just say this. You said mixing in a small group. We were actually under BBC protocol in three separate bubbles. So on screen, there had to be a two meter triangle between Shemi, Zoid and I. And we were the only three people out there. So Shemi and I produced and directed it all, sent it back to Man. Zoid sent it back to Manchester. But it was an incredibly isolating seven weeks, essentially living on your own in these tiny apartments in a nearly empty ski resort. It should have been heaven, but it was very surreal. Yeah, definitely a challenge, you know, that people wouldn't necessarily consider uh, at the time. And particularly, I think I'm right in saying, in some of the uh, the later episodes, you were, um, I kind of, I guess, literally being propped up uh, to get through the episodes because you had a pretty serious uh, accident off camera. Uh, it was just after the second show. I hit a tree stump in very deep snow. It was submerged. And I was... Part of me thinks I was lucky that it wasn't more serious, but it it could have been a sort of it could have been the end of skiing and snowboarding for me. I dislocated my kneecap, broke my tibia, and clean snapped the medial and ACL. So I had two ligaments left, but not much else. We did a DIY knee relocation on site, and it took two and a half hours to get me out of there because we were quite a long way off piece. But it was. Yeah, that was that was challenging because already the situation was mentally challenging. But I hadn't, like a lot of people, I hadn't worked properly on doing the job I loved and did regularly for nine months by then. So I was absolutely adamant I was going to make that happen. I was able to schedule surgery. It was quite severe, but they stabilized the leg. I was in a straight leg brace for three weeks and we scheduled surgery. So... The injury was everything snapped so clean. I had a broken bone in there, but they, it was it was all pretty stable. I was able to get through the third, fourth, and fifth shows quite well, and then I had the surgery. And the sixth and seventh shows were the sixth, especially five days after surgery, with this pulsating knee hanging off my. <laughs> Shemi was if Shemi we do try and film the links, and if Shemi missed a line, she'd look at me, and I'd be sort of melting into the floor the pressure on her to get her lines right was just phenomenal i felt so sorry for her just so you could get off take your weight off your feet is that what we're saying yeah 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 i'd had and um, and and the way and the camera would still shoot you head to toe would it or would it have to kind of go waist upwards 
No, we were all right. I'd just stand on one leg. I'd get a nice solid platform and I could put a tiny bit of weight on it, but I'd just stand there. But we had to get to it. We'd usually go sort of halfway and drive up to a spot where we could jump on snow and meet there. But yeah, it was it was definitely the hardest ski season of Ski Sunday we've ever filmed. But I was I was really proud that we were able to get through it. And I was very... I, I put a post up about it afterwards, but I was very adamant that it was such an important series to give people a bit of hope that it was still, the mountains were still out there and waiting for people to return. And I didn't want it to be pessimistic. So I th- I thought at the time it was the right thing to do to keep it under wraps. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say anecdotally, uh, you know, when I was doing the podcast through all of that winter season, when everywhere was closed, apart from Switzerland, where the lists were open in Switzerland, I had so many uh, comments and contact from listeners who were saying, you know, thank you for keeping us in contact with the sport that we love for, you know, and, and for me personally, you know, I found it really difficult not being able to uh, not just not being able to go to the outs but like whether or not my our industry was just going to come to a halt you know I, my my real job is uh, digital marketing you know and I work for ski companies and uh, you know is is this it is it you know I'm gonna have to be forced into early retirement and so it was for me to be able to talk to people out in the Alps who were either ski touring, you know, in France or skiing in Switzerland, etc., you know, it helped me with my own mental health, uh, you know, uh, during that season. And I think, you know, it helped, uh, you know, some listeners uh, as well. We were, we were ever so nervous when we went to air for the first show that were we doing something that was just rubbing people's noses in it or was it, something that people wanted to see and we had the same response universally positive like thank goodness that there's something out there that isn't covid it was really uh, that was really reassuring yeah and you know you mentioned much earlier in uh, our conversation uh, you live in new zealand at least some of the time uh, you know, after, you know, those lockdowns freed up, you were able to go back to New Zealand uh, again. Will you go back to New Zealand at the end of uh, this winter season as well? Yeah, I'm I'm currently working on our work on the natural selections in late March, uh, early March and late March, early April. There's one in Revelstoke, uh, 4th to the 11th of March. Uh, and then there's one in Alaska uh, from the 26th to the 2nd or 3rd. Uh, 26th of March to the 2nd or 3rd of April. So I'll go back to New Zealand via the States doing those jobs. So there, and for me, I, as I mentioned, I'm so passionate about those. So getting to watch those. I, but like most live events now that happen in remote locations, you don't get to go on site. The broadcast teams sit at a hub. It saves on flights. It saves on resources. So I'll be sat in a studio in Santa Monica in California watching people in Revelstoke and Valdez. But no matter, I'm so passionate about it. It's a privilege to do that. But you will be on your way back to New Zealand. So does that mean, I think, are you based in, in Wanaka or Queenstown? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wanaka. So um, I'd liken it to Borg San Maurice, but with a lake. 
Yeah, no, I've been to Wanaka. It's a, it's a very, very beautiful uh, place for sure. So does that mean that you get to have a, an endless season? You'll uh, go straight from a northern hemisphere winter, slot into a southern hemisphere winter as well, and then back again. Yeah, there's, there's about six weeks off on either side. Um, from the, I'll finish up in the States probably mid-April and then go back down there. Uh, so we'll have May and then they try and open middle of June. And then our season went on until 20th of October in New Zealand this year. So, yeah, it was, again, very short period of time off snow. And it's, is that a very it, a different experience when you're in New Zealand in, let's say, our summer? You know, you, you know you're off, off the clock as far as Ski Sunday is concerned. But on the clock for so many other things. <laughs> Presenting and commentating is post-pandemic, less of my career it's and it's always been i'd say probably 50 or 60 percent on ski sunday the presenting part is probably only about 20 percent of it the other bit it's about 70 percent baggage handling pulling camera equipment and ski gear in and out of cars and trains <laughs> right <laughs> and then uh, i'm i'm the resident uh chef on ski sunday as well i cook for all of the crew so i spend a lot of time in supermarkets and in front of uh they used to two seasons ago they thought i was a brilliant chef but <laughs> they've realized that i just repeat they've cl- clocked on to the fact that i'm rotating the same seven recipes by now so the, that the that does ring a bell because actually when i spoke to chemi when she was in uh luck she was talking about uh, one of your specialist meals i'd have to listen to that episode again now to be able to remember what it was but uh i can tell but... you what it is because i i actually told her the um recipe for it and she cooked it for dougie uh crawford her husband for valentine's day but it's it's a real cheat it looks really fancy it's cauliflower <laughs> mash with feta cheese and watercress with some um five spice lamb chops and it sounds really fancy, but it takes about 15 minutes. It's really easy. Excellent. Well, I can't think of a better way to, to sign off than uh, Ed Lee's recipe tips for surviving the season. Hey, look, I've really enjoyed this uh, conversation. And I will, it'll be a special episode that uh, we'll release. I'd like to really, I enjoy Ski Sunday. And like I say, I might fast forward a little bit through the racing, but, uh, you know, all of those features and everything. So, you know, really like to thank you and Chris and Chemi and the rest of the team for uh, putting that together. And I wish you all the best for, for the World Championships and the rest of the season uh, for natural selection and for your time back in New Zealand. And listener, I'm just going to give you a final reminder that, uh, you know, hey, you can sell anything on ebay and donate those um, your your revenues your profits to disability snow sport uk um so that's brilliant ed thanks so much absolute pleasure thank you so much Ian. well i hope you enjoyed that special episode listener don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any other episodes and if you do enjoy the pod don't forget you can buy me a coffee if you so wish at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast uh, you can follow me at skipedia and the podcast at the ski podcast but for now i would like to thank ed for being so generous with his time and finally listener thank you to you for joining us and until next time goodbye Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ski Podcast. 
Don't forget that if you want to support the podcast, then remember to book your ski hire with Intersport and use the code SKIPODCAST or simply take the link in the show notes. It'll save you money and help us too. Thanks again and have a great winter.